If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From fierce rivals to romantic entanglements... Sometimes, two heads are better than one when it comes to making a mark in the history books. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the journalist and news presenter Kathy Newman, author of It Takes Two, a book about powerful couples and dynamic duos who changed the course of history. Kathy was joined in conversation by our digital section editor, Rachel Dinning. Your book, It Takes Two, tells the stories of remarkable duos through history whose relationships are particularly interesting in some way or they achieve great things together. Um, And my first question is, when you came to write this book, how did you define what a couple is? Because the individuals you choose aren't necessarily romantic pairings. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very good question. I, I didn't want to write a book about sort of wrote cloying romantic couples I didn't want that to be what coupledom meant obviously that's part of it and there are great love stories um you know Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton for example um but it's much more about 
the nature of partnership, the nature of collaboration and why two is special. And there is something special about two. The old saying, you know, two's company, three's a crowd, for example. But actually, if you look at what uh, sociologists have examined about couples, there's something special about the nature of a relationship between two that is different. Um, It's what sociologists call dyads. So I started from that point. And then I just looked at partnerships of all different sorts. So serendipitous business relationships like Michael Marks and Thomas Spencer, Marks and Spencer, for example. I looked at sibling relationships, Charles and Mary Lamb, the Tales of Shakespeare authors, as another example. And I looked at creative relationships. So Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, who sparked off each other, or one half of the couple helped the other achieve greatness. Or, for example, the escaped slaves, William Allen Craft, they fled uh, from Georgia, where they were enslaved, and they managed to make it through great, through dint of their incredible bond with each other, they managed to make it to Surrey. And so I looked at all these different relationships and how those pairings had in some way changed history or helped stand out in some way. So that the criteria for who I included was really in some way they had to have made a mark on history and to a greater or lesser extent, all the couples in the books have. And obviously you look at such a like broad spectrum. Um, what are the key qualities that you sort of picked up on um, that make a really successful pairing? Were there any sort of similarities between all of these couples? Yeah, of course. And I, it, it was quite... Unlike the previous book, Bloody Brilliant Women, where I was telling the arc of a particular century, pretty much the 20th century, these the couples in this book are drawn from throughout history and from across the world. So I had to find a way of sort of ordering them and finding what what couples had in common with each other uh, that singled them out. So I did broadly divide it into different chapters. So commitment, for example, the William Allen Craft, I've talked about the, the slaves from Georgia, the reason what made them special, what made them successful was that they were so incredibly committed to each other. They knew what each other were thinking. And that's how they successfully made it from Georgia to the UK to Surrey, because uh, Ellen had to dress up. She had to pretend to be her husband's master. Her skin was paler. So she just about got away with it. Uh, And Without that bond of commitment, they probably wouldn't have made it. The the same chapter, there's um, a couple of women called Lady Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby, who have become known as the Ladies of Llangollen, who, again, it's another tale of escape. They fled from Ireland to Wales, where they set up this idyllic existence, um, sort of removed from society, but actually they became rather victims of their own success and became famous for their glorious isolation. So again, they were totally 100% committed to each other. Then there's communication, which covers muses, uh, not just female muses, by the way, but the odd male muse as well, like Eric Femby is, I think you could describe him as a, a male muse to Frederick Delius, the composer. So that the, the, the thing that made that relationship special was communication. Um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Elizabeth Siddle, she was his muse. And it was a sort of bond of communication there. Another theme was competitiveness, which shades into tension. So 
it can be, it can start off as a positive thing in a relationship and then it can tip the relationship over the edge. So Martha Gellhorn and Ernest Hemingway, for example, they were very competitive with each other. He was inspired by her style. Uh, She developed that very simple prose that he then became known for. But he was also pretty jealous of her success as a war correspondent. Uh, So that there's tension there which can destabilise a relationship. And and going back to what the sociologists say about couples, there's a, a sense that when couples are horizontal, as they call it, where there's a sort of 50-50 partnership that works. It's when that relationship becomes vertical, where one person is sort of placed above the other, then that's where tensions arise. So it's interesting, I found that there were a lot of tech titans who were duos, who set up, you know, Apple and Microsoft, for example, started off as pairings. And those relationships worked until the relationship between became imbalanced between the two of them. So um, I'm thinking of Bill Gates at Microsoft and Paul Allen, for example. And when they started to want different things out of the business and they had different ambitions, when one wanted the limelight more than the other, that was when things got tricky. Yeah, it's really interesting that you you don't just look at these case studies, you also sort of look at the philosophy of, of being a couple. And um, there's one there's one philosopher who's German called Georg Simmel, I think you explain some of his work. Um, could you perhaps tell our listeners a bit about him and how he, like what was what his thinking about the power of two, um, the power of a couple it, it was? He was a German sociologist who studied dyads, which are couples. And he examined why the bigger the group was, the more isolated people in that group felt. So he decided that dyads were more important than triads because he said they had a a greater unity and sort of co-responsibility and interdependence. But he also pointed out that dyadic groups, while you can preserve your individuality within a, a, a pairing, it's also a fragile relationship because either party can end the relationship. But even so, a a relationship of two is simpler than a relationship of three or more. And I think also one of the things, one of the points I was trying to make in the book, as I wrote it, the pandemic was raging. And it sort of occurred to me, actually the, the moment when I was thinking about it, the fallout from Brexit, divisions in America, all of this, there's these great events around the world, which obviously I'm very much embroiled in as a a news presenter. And it just struck me that all the big problems that the world has at the moment, climate change, another one, the search for a vaccine now for coronavirus, none of this, none of the solutions to the world's problems can be found without working together. And so it struck me that my exploration of the, the power of two it was a useful way of looking at it's a it's a peon to collaboration really it's a it's in praise of forging partnerships unusual partnerships a lot of the couples in the book you might not think would get along hester thrale and samuel johnson samuel johnson the, the dictionary man and hester thrale who was a, a sort of blue stocking welsh woman they forged this extraordinary relationship not as far as we know a romantic relationship but a, a an intellectual relationship, really, where she would take down his witty sayings and he would encourage her in her sort of witticisms and intellectual creativity. And so they sparked off each other. 
And she kept a record of all his sayings and he encouraged her to fill her notebooks with her observations, which um, were published as Thraliana. Again, I might not be pronouncing that correctly, uh, after her death. And she she corrected his proofs as well. So there was a real sort of intellectual partnership there, but not one that you would expect. This little blue stocking Welshwoman and the great man of letters, Samuel Johnson. Uh, I mean, the, uh, Frederick Delius and Eric Fenby, a pretty, pretty strange relationship as well. Um, Camille Claudel and Auguste Rodin. You know, we've all heard of Auguste Rodin, but we haven't perhaps heard of Camille Claudel when in fact she... He inspired her to produce some amazing sculptures, The Wave and Sakuntala, for example. And under her influence, he also produced some of his best work, The Kiss. But, you know, there were, there were decades between them. There, it, was, it was an unexpected relationship. I think most of the couples in the book are one of my favourite, for example, uh, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor and Jesse Wormsley. He was known as the Black Marler. He was championed by Elgar. His dad was from Sierra Leone. He got a scholarship to the Royal College of Music here in London. He lived in Croydon. Um, she was a white woman from a different class to him, brought up with different expectations. But they, and theirs was a romantic relationship. They were husband and wife. But in it was an un, unexpected relationship in those times. He got a lot of racial abuse. She leapt in to defend him from that abuse. And by being them, by being married to each other, by being a successful couple in an unexpected way, they, I think, helped start to change attitudes to race in Britain. They're one of my favourite, actually. Yeah, I was going to ask who is the, the couple that, <laughs> that struck you the most. One, um, one of the themes in your book is uh, power couples, which obviously people have such a fascination for, you know, everyone loves Beyonce and Jay-Z and, and are sort yeah. of intrigued by those kind of dynamics. Um, I was going to ask who's the ultimate power couple from history for you? Well, I, I might this might surprise you, this answer, because actually... In the extract in the Observer, for example, they they seized on you know some of the political couples and Beyonce and Jay Z. Actually, in that chapter about power, probably my favourite couple from that chapter um, is the last one, Stella and Fanny, who otherwise known as Thomas Ernest Bolton and Frederick William Park, and they were Victorian crossdressers, and they were defendants in a celebrated trial at the end of the nineteenth century sorry, 1871, I think it was. Um, and they were charged with conspiring to commit an unnatural offence. And what had happened, a fascinating story. Stella was the uh, lover of the son of the Duke of Newcastle and Fanny was the son of a judge. So from very sort of respectable families. And they dressed in full drag and went to the theatre. And the police then swooped on them as they left. And I just love that the policeman said... Uh, to Fanny, I have every reason to believe you are men in female attire. And Fanny said, how dare you address a lady in that manner, sir? Which I just love this little sort of vignette and the sort of commotion it caused. And the prosecution witness was unable to prove that they had caused an offence. And Stella's mum, Mary Ann Bolton, just said, well, so what? He likes to dress up in, in dresses. And she actually had lent her son some of her own dresses and so the jury found them not guilty despite the home secretary encouraging the attorney general to prosecute and it started it did it didn't signal a sea change in attitudes towards homosexuality but it just started the conversation 
And this really surprised me because if you think about, you know, the Oscar Wilde trial, that was until 1895. So Stella and Fanny, the case, you know, decades before, and yet started to sort of really change, yeah, change the course of history. So for me, they are the ultimate power couple and it's soft power, really. By being who they were, they started to change attitudes. So that might surprise you that that's my favourite pick from that. I mean, there's lots of political couples as well, which because I'm fascinated in politics, I'm fascinated in, for example, Clement Attlee and Winston Churchill. Again, obviously not a romantic relationship, but they um, Clement Attlee served under Winston Churchill in the coalition wartime government. And their relationship is fascinating, especially seen through the prism of today, because... Um, as we know, uh, Boris Johnson, Churchill is his sort of role model. And we, coronavirus, the battle against coronavirus has been compared to a war. Clement Attlee sort of kept his feet on the ground, made sure that, uh, that Winston Churchill read the paperwork, did his homework. And they couldn't have been more different in terms of personalities. Um, you know, Clement Attlee went on holiday to Frinton, Winston Churchill swanned off to France. It was kind of the glamour of Churchill versus the sort of hard work of Clement Attlee. And they were a great pairing. And it just made me think, where is that pairing in politics at the moment? Is that kind of collaboration something that could serve as well today as it did in the past? I was actually going to ask you a question about the great man theory of history, because it's one of those things But when we do look at history and politics and leadership, um, we think, you know, there's this theory. So the great man theory of history is that an individual, usually a white man, <laughs> is a driver of historical change. Um, and this is just one person, the acts of one person. I mean, what's your take on this theory? Um, it, is it, you know, is it individuals that drive societal change? Or is it, you know, is there more to it than that? Are we better as pairs and collaborators? Yeah, what's your sort of point of view? Yeah, it really struck me this. It's Thomas Carlyle came up with this great man theory of history. Interestingly, there have been a few women's, women who have made the, the pantheon, for example, Joan of Arc. But yeah, as you say, largely white men. And it's really derived from the cult of personality in Greek and Roman history. It got me thinking, though, that actually in recent years, we've seen a resurgence of the great man or strong man politics. So Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, Jair Bolsonaro, to name but a few. And, you know, populism here in the UK, too, uh, post-Brexit. And when you look at the chaos around the world, you look at streets and flames in America, you look at the bitter divisions here, elsewhere in Europe, in the US particularly, you just can't help but thinking that that style of the cult of personality politics, populist politics, is not serving the world very well at the moment. I mean, you contrast that with someone like Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. And I'm not making a political point here. Uh, there, there's been a study, I forget who did it, but a study very recently about how female leaders have done better in the coronavirus crisis. Obviously, the jury's still out. But Jacinda Ardern has a very different style from a lot of her male counterparts around the world. She has a partnership with her first mate, um, who takes a lot of the childcare responsibilities and helps support her in her role. And she has a much more collaborative approach to politics than 
than the sort of governing by diktat in other countries. And that just, in looking at what these couples achieved together and how much more they achieved than if they'd worked alone, it just struck me that this might be a model for the way forward. Perhaps the great man theory of history has had its day. Well, I think it, it's certainly time for a new, a new model. Actually, the re- I mean, it goes back to the reason why I wrote the book in the first place, because when I was doing my last book, Bloody Brilliant Women, I realised that a lot of the women who had changed the course of history had actually been supported by men in their lives or other female pairings. So, for example, you know, we've all heard of Nye Bevan, the founder of the NHS. Not so many have heard of Jenny Lee his wife, who was arts minister and a wildly popular arts minister. She was so popular that when she took her seat in the theatre, she was applauded by the audience. And what they achieved together is more than they could have achieved on their own. Similarly, Elsie Widowson, who um, came up with the sort of wartime nutrition ration book, she could only have achieved what she achieved because she had a very supportive research partner, Robert McCants. So that, all these achievements through history and the way that women in particular have changed the course of history made me realise how limiting that idea of governing singularly is. In a way, you could say that the, the great man theory of history has always been the, the the importance of that has always been exaggerated because for example marxism is actually the creation of two people karl marx and friedrich engels evolutionary theory charles darwin was actually massively helped by contributions from a british nat- naturalist called alfred russell wallace so a lot of a lot of achievements that we think have been achieved alone have actually been achieved in collaboration. By the way, I'm not making a political point about Marxism being an achievement, by the way. It's just obviously something that changed the course of history. Yeah, um, I completely understand what you mean. Um, I was, yeah, I was going to ask, do, is this one of the risks of being in a pair rather than being an individual, especially if you're in a, a sphere where you're working on something? Um, do we have a tendency to attribute the success to one half of the pair? Um, it seems like that comes up quite a lot, especially in the tech field. Mm, yeah, I, I think that is a really interesting question. And if, for example, two that I've mentioned already, but that definitely applies to is uh, Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, because she was talented in her own right, but her talents were overlooked because of what critics at the time, maybe even now thought of as his greater talent. And Actually, in part, that's because she sacrificed a lot of her work to support him. So he was very needy. He was an alcoholic and actually died drink driving. But she made his creativity possible because she made their uninhabitable farmhouse without electricity habitable. And she, you know, sort of fussed around making everything okay for him so that he could produce his great art. But actually, she produced great art in her own right, which has been overlooked. I mean, similarly, um, with uh, Auguste Rodin and Camille Claudel, her talents have been somewhat submerged by his. Maybe it's easier to get a grip on a, a single name. Maybe that's, 
But I'm not sure that's the whole answer. I think some of it is, as I explored in my previous book, I think some of it is a kind of sexist writing of history that the focus is very often on the man's achievement. Another example, but um, just to go into it in a little bit more depth, Martha Gellhorn and Ernest Hemingway, she pioneered his style and yet he became famous for it. Um, and she was always paid a lower word rate than him. She was always sent on the freighter to go to the war zones in Europe and he was sent by seaplane. So there's a double standard at the time that then also applies in the writing of history, which means that some of the achievements of the female half of the pair are overlooked. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They were tackling these issues then. You know, she witnessed the racism he experienced from, for example, people in the church. And she leapt to his defence and called out that racism in a way that hopefully we're trying to do now. And so these were couples. It was a love story that was ahead of its time, really. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And in your book, you, you don't just look at um, instances of collaboration and working together, and um, you also look at competitiveness, and you've got a whole chapter on competitiveness. And when we think of couple, we think of a pair working in harmony, but actually rivalries, are, you know, are interesting in themselves. So could you perhaps tell our listeners a bit about some of the, the rivals that you focus on in your book? Where it's successful, there's a a creative tension where each half of the pair spurs each other on. Um, and that's, so for example, we talked about 
um, Camille Claudel and Auguste Rodin, she did produce some of her best work under his influence and vice versa. But at the same time, you know, we've, we've talked about how she was perhaps overlooked. Um, I mean, I also, there's a chapter on destructive tension as well, because actually one other person I should mention, one of the couple I should mention in, um, who developed a competitive relationship. In fact, it's very common with artists, sort of artistic rivalry, Paul Gauguin and Vincent van Gogh. So they, you know, they inspired each other, but it also became very destructive. And it was actually after a row with Gauguin that van Gogh cut off a slice of his left ear. Um, So Gauguin wrote subsequently of two human beings, the one like a volcano and the other boiling too. There was a battle in store. And partly because it's such a good story, but also because I suppose it's a warning of how if you do let those tensions bubble up, they can boil over. Um, I looked at the Victorian author, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, and his wife, Rosina, who had a terrible relationship. I mean, domestic violence, um, they slandered each other. It became an absolutely toxic situation. In the end, they were estranged from each other. They were estranged from various children. But at the same time, it was an incredibly creatively enabling relationship because he wrote prolifically in order to keep the lifestyle going that they'd become accustomed to. And she also wrote, partly fueled by her sort of anger at his conduct in the marriage. So <laughs> terrible relationship, but fueled some... Cre- I mean, he at the time sold more novels than Charles Dickens. To Charles Dickens. So he was known for the phrases, it was a dark and stormy night and the pen is mightier than the sword. So in his day, he was one of the most successful writers. Um, he wrote, I think he wrote a, a novel a year to fund their lavish lifestyle. I think he wrote 11 novels and various poems and plays. And she sort of turned their relationship into fodder for her writing as well, thinly disguised. So, and, and I partly, actually, to be honest, included their relationship because it's just such an incredible story. But it did also serve the point of illustrating how, yeah, coupledom is a, a sort of finely balanced thing. Creative tension is is all very well, but can tip over into something much more destructive. Yeah, it's really interesting to me, actually, how um, just the dynamic of between two people can create be, be a productive thing even if it's in a destructive way like that I think mm. you, you mentioned this study uh, during the book but it's by Norman I think his name is Norman Triplett um, it's at the end of the 19th century and he looked at data from cyclists and found that they recorded faster times when they were competing against others than when they were just yeah. doing it alone and I just thought yeah. how tr- like for me that's so personally true like the recent lockdown exemplified it like I've been living I was living alone the, for the whole of of the lo- the lockdown, the, the strict lockdown earlier this year. Um, and I was exercising and I just wasn't putting any effort in. And then as soon as... The, <laughs> I was like, I'm usually so sporty, but if I'm at home alone doing an exercise video, I just give up and, and lie on the sofa. But if I'm in a gym <laughs> and I'm surrounded by other people, I'll be like raring to go. I'm like, I, you know, I want to be the best. It's, it's so, really, so weird. 
Actually, I just because I just interviewed um, Tani Gray Thompson and she, the Paralympian, and her husband was a wheelchair athlete too. And she described the incredible competitive, very intense competition between them that just absolutely powered her on. So even when she was winning gold medals, he would still critique her race in a way that, to be honest, I would find quite frustrating but she said that she found it completely empowering and it just propelled her to ever greater feats of sporting success yeah it's a bit of a fuel (laughs) Mm, yeah um so one other chapter of your book that um I thought was interesting actually it was it's called serendipity and it's about couples yeah. coming together through you know well as as the title suggests um chance yeah. or luck um, so here are some good examples from this section that you you found interesting that they came together and it, it you know it worked well or conversely worked came was a was a bad thing I um my absolute favorite from this chapter is Michael Marks and Thomas Spencer because it, it quite familiar, oh, uh, a lot of the book I tried to pick couples who perhaps weren't that well known to people, but um, some are, you know, household names and probably Marks and Spencer, obviously, we know very well. And we probably are broadly aware of the story, but I haven't known the details of it. So Michael Marks uh, had left Belarus as a teenager. His mother had died in childbirth. He'd been brought up by his elder sister and he arrived in Hartlepool with only a few words of English and slept on the floor of the local synagogue. So I thought that was an incredible start to this entrepreneurial success story. Um, And he became a travelling salesman, walking the dales, selling buttons, socks, needles and wool, etc. And um, how he came across his business partner, I think, is really interesting because he'd started this business with a a £5 loan from a, a clothing merchant, Isaac Dewhurst. And so he asked Isaac if he'd go into business with him. And Isaac refused. So probably, I'm sure he lived to regret that, uh, but recommended his cashier, Thomas Spencer. And Spencer was totally the opposite of Marx in terms of personality. He was a burly, sort of no-nonsense Yorkshireman. And he put £300, his life savings, into the business. And that working partnership lasted nine years, which actually in the context of the business, you know, it had a far longer legacy than that, but it seems fairly short, but it was, you know, an enduring relationship. It, in that time, um, what became M&S expanded into 40 stores from, you know, Michael Marks had started with just a trestle table laden with baskets, um, what was known as a penny bazaar, because the, the some of the contents in the basket were only cost a penny. So it expanded from that to 40 stores and that £300 investment that Thomas Spencer put in um, was worth, ended up being worth 15,000, so two million pounds in today's money. So an extraordinary story and a story of serendipity because it just so happened that uh, Isaac Dewhurst, the clothing merchant, put Michael Marks in touch with Thomas Spencer and the rest is a history of, you know, incredible business. Um, so that was my favourite story from Serendipity. Um, the other one, the other incredible, again, a well-known story t- to some, although I didn't know the details. The ultimate serendipitous union is, of course, twins. And the Jim twins, as they became known, James Springer and James Lewis, um, they were separated at birth and their adoptive parents called them both Jim, completely coincidentally. And when they met in their late 30s, they discovered that they had both been married and divorced 
from a woman called Linda. Then they both married a woman called Betty. They both owned a dog called Toy. They both liked carpentry and mechanical drawing and holidaying in exactly the same part of Florida. They liked the same brand of cigarettes and beer. And they'd both named their eldest children James Allen and James Allen, spelt slightly differently, but even so. And so this, to me, was just a magical story of twindom that even though they had been separated all their lives, they still thought the same way. They still had this union. That is so crazy. It sort of takes the nature, the nature nurture debate to a next level. That that so many coincidences. Um, Yeah, absolutely. What about so you mentioned also this thing that the novelist William Boyd called zemblanity. So this is the opposite of serendipity, where a chance encounter <laughs> produces something maybe not so good. Um, do you have yeah. any interesting examples of of that happening? Yeah, I think I think the best example of this is um, the TV star Simon D and actor George Lazenby, um, and Lazenby. This, I suppose, was um, serendipity. He won the chance to play James Bond after arranging to have his hair cut at the same salon as uh, the series producer, Cubby Broccoli. And um, Dee then (laughs) moved um, to ITV from BBC, from the BBC. And when he... So he then got um, George Lazenby on his show. And (laughs) Lazenby looked a bit stoned and he pulled this piece of paper from his pocket and read out a list of senators who he said were involved in a plot to kill President Kennedy. And that unhappy accident of bringing the two of them together meant that uh, Simon D's show was cancelled after one series. So (laughs) it can go horrible. A chance encounter can go horribly wrong. Oh, a sad butterfly effect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I much prefer the the serendipitous unions, to be honest. Like Helene Hanf and Frank Dole, um, 84 Charing Cross Road. I love that story. And, you know, turned into a book and a film. Most people know it, but it it was a a letter. They never never actually met, um, but it was an American woman who sent uh, Frank Dole from the bookshop in Charing Cross Road a list of books she was looking for. And they began this incredible correspondence, started off as... Um, dear madam and then first name terms but they never met and she published the book of of their letters the year after he died and that sort of captured the imagination as something magical about two people forging a bond through correspondence um, and just really hitting it off without ever having set foot on the same soil oh that's quite beautiful um, yeah, and you have the you have a whole chapter on communication as well. Um, can you g- give us any further examples of how can you you know good communication between a historic couple perhaps changed history or is just a really nice story? Again, we were talking about odd couples earlier, and a great example of an odd couple who thrived through communications: Henry Cavendish and Charles Blagden. And Cavendish was, he was really eccentric. He, he used to wear a violet suit with a high collar and sort of frilly cuffs and apparently emitted a, a, a nervous squeak when he spoke. And he was very, he was, he had very strange rituals. He always walked the same route and wore the same clothes and ate the same meal. And he was apparently so scared of bumping into 
his maid on the staircase that he had a separate staircase built for staff to use. Amazing. So you can get a picture of this real uh, English eccentric. He was nicknamed the Wizard of Clapham Common. But he made this extraordinary achievement. He discovered the existence of hydrogen. And this is where the communication bit comes in because he met Charles Blagden, who is not known for very much except Blagden's law, which um, I could explain to you if, if I could remember. It's about dilute solutions. Um, very scientific. But anyway, no one remembers that now. But what they do remember is that Charles, what Charles Blagden was very well connected. And so he effectively became Henry Cavendish's assistant, kind of Watson to Cavendish's homes. And so he would then communicate all of Henry Cavendish's amazing eccentric scientific ideas to the wider scientific community and would get them noticed. And so together they achieved something that really on their own, um, yeah, Henry Cavendish would, would probably still be using the the different staircase to his maid in inglorious isolation. And perhaps we'd, we'd never know the fruits of his labour. So I love that idea that through that successful and very unusual union, they managed to really, well, I keep on using the phrase change the course of history, but it's, it's true. That's what fascinated me about these quite chance encounters that uh, led to something magical. Mm-hmm. And I suppose one thing we haven't actually mentioned explicitly, and it's the first thing people will think of when you think of a couple, is is love and romantic love. Um, so I, I suppose one of my final questions to you would be, what what's like, what is the greatest story of love that you came across when writing your book? Yeah, and there's so many, there's so many great stories. Like I've, I've mentioned Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. I mean, it is a great love story, but also uh, a doomed one. Um, I, I'll just, I, because it is such a great story, they, Elizabeth Taylor was actually married eight times to seven different men, and she married Richard Burton twice. So after Richard Burton slept with her, he walked into the men's makeup trailer and announced, gentlemen, I've just slept with Elizabeth Taylor in the back of my Cadillac. So, you know, he wasn't um, remotely feminist, let's just say. So he saw her as a bit of a notch on his bedpost. But even so, there was some sort of magical way in which they were they were drawn to each other. And she had a magic on screen. So when he first heard about her, he kind of dismissed her as um, Little Miss Mammary, I think he called her. And she had this reputation for being very tricky and for she had a an issue with prescription drugs, for example. She was often calling in sick and when she should have been filming. And she also knew that he had a dark side. So she said, you know, if a prefrontal lobotomy was performed on his skull, out would fly snakes, frogs, worms, tadpoles and bats. But at the same time, he told she told a, a friend on one of the sets that uh, just listening to his voice gave her an orgasm. So there was something special and magnetic about their relationship, which is probably why they went on to marry each other twice. twice. <laughs> <laughs> Once wasn't good enough. But I also found it incredibly touching, if we're talking about love, um, Mary and Charles Lamb. Tragic story in many ways. 18th century um, poets, essayists and authors of Tales of Shakespeare, which has never been out of print, a retelling of the Shakespeare plays for children. And Mary, tragic because she murdered her mother. 
She was never, she didn't stand trial for murder because she was declared insane. But what I love about this story is that Charles never deserted her. They were peas in a pod, brother and sister. They would, when they, whenever they travelled, they would take a straight jacket with them so that if she felt she was going a bit insane, she would just sort of put the straight jacket on and he would kind of administer to her. Um, and I, so I found that really touching as a, a sibling relationship of love. But I think my favourite love story probably from the whole lot is Samuel Coleridge Taylor and Jesse Wormsley, partly because they they changed, they started again, as we were talking about Stella and Fanny earlier, they started to change the conversation about interracial couples. And so it was a love story, which was also a force for social change. And, you know, their families were really opposed to their relationship at first, or at least her family was. Um, but her families became reconciled to him. And, he, you know, incredibly talented, as I say, Elgar endorsed him. He became known as the Black Marler. Um, his music, the Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, was very successful here, but also in America. And it was a tragic, it's a tragic story as well, because he died really um, from overwork at the age of, I think he was in his 30s. So, you know, incredibly young and you just think that a talent cut short. What I find really touching as well now, when you think about all the discussion now, the Black Lives Matter movement, and you think about, we're, try, we're trying to come to terms with our history and, and understand some of the awful things that happened in the past in terms of racism and slavery and so on. And you look at a relationship like Samuel Coleridge-Taylor and Jesse Wormsley, and they were tackling these issues then. You know, she witnessed the racism he experienced from, for example, people in the church, and she leapt to his defence and called out that racism in a way that hopefully we're trying to do now. And so these were couples. It was a love story that was ahead of its time, really. Um, it was something that it was a, a magic that was conjured up in suburban Croydon. And I just think that's one that really stands the test of time. You were listening to Kathy Newman. Her book, It Takes Two, A History of the Couples Who Dared to be Different, is out now, published by HarperCollins. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Helen O'Hara about the tumultuous history of women in Hollywood. (laughs) 